1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast, one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book, Pandemic Perspectives A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features internationally renowned neuroscientist Miguel Nicolelis, who found himself suddenly returning to his epidemiological roots when he became trapped in his native Brazil when the pandemic exploded in early 2020. I had the pleasure of having an Ideas Roadshow conversation with Miguel years ago about his pioneering work in brain-machine interfaces, but suffice it to say that this one was quite different and yet perhaps even more important. Let me begin with a fairly generic sort of question. To what extent do you think that the pandemic has highlighted a core societal difficulty of dealing with information?
0: Well, I think the pandemic, among other issues, brought to the forefront exactly the crisis that we are facing for a few decades now, that has basically peaked in the last decade or so, in which uh, it has become very difficult for the general population to assert or to judge what is true and what is not because uh, of fragilities that we know we have, you know, in terms of the way our brains operate and how peer pressure can, can generate alternative realities very easily uh, because the way our brains function this problem has now reached a level in which it has become pretty lethal because a lot of people died during the pandemic because of misinformation, particularly people that believed that there were uh, alternative treatments that could be used that, of course, didn't exist, or people who denied the uh, relevance and efficiency of vaccines. So we will need a, a pre Toro study to actually quantify what is the percentage of people who die because of misinformation or or disinformation virus that I like to call, but it's a sizable, a considerable number. It's not negligible.
1: Yeah. Let me move a little bit to a personal question. So you're a leading neuroscientist, and we've had the pleasure of having uh, a long discussion of your work many years ago. I'm guessing that you never imagine that you would find yourself in an advisory capacity to governments during a pandemic. Two questions. First of all, what have your recent experiences revealed to you in terms of the different cultures of politics and science? And the second question is, what sort of a personal toll has it taken on you?
0: Yes. First, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I, as I mentioned to you before, I came to Brazil to visit my family here in February of 2020 and got trapped here, you know, because by the time the pandemic exploded in the U S and in Brazil, I couldn't leave. There were no planes and, uh, the, uh, Brazilian airspace was closed. It was, it, was, it looked like a sci-fi movie. And in the middle of that, uh, I was invited. I was here, trapped in my apartment in Sao Paulo, and uh, I was invited by a consortium of nine governors from the northeast of Brazil to lead a a scientific commission to advise the nine governors, which is equivalent to Great Britain. If you you put the area and the population together, uh, it's about 68 million people, you know, the size of Great Britain, uh, with the difference that the British committee had a million dollars a day as a budget, and we had zero. So I had to recruit scientists all over the country. We created a virtual panel of about 2,000 scientists around the, the, Brazil, and I, in, including some people abroad. And we, out of nothing, created an advising body with many subcommittees, which probably was one of the largest scientific committees in, in the world, if you put the whole thing together. And of course, I'm a neuroscientist, but I started my career in medical school as uh, studying epidemiology. I, in the beginning, I was studying bacteria epidemiology uh, in a hospital environment. And suddenly, 35 years later, I was using my, the papers and the you know, knowledge that I acquired to advise nine governors. And it was pretty, pretty rough. It was pretty difficult because it's not only Brazil, it's all over the world. I noticed that everywhere, in Great Britain, in the US, everywhere, the dialogue between scientists and politicians is pretty difficult because the world perspectives are completely different. You know, politicians are thinking about the next election and what they need to do to keep their constituencies happy to get reelected. And we are thinking about saving lives and minimizing the the human suffering. And it was a clash of cultures. And at a certain point, it became pretty, pretty tense. Luckily, uh, my colleagues in the committee were very supportive and we, we had a very... Unite strong opinion that I think during the first wave helped smooth the wave in Brazil. The cases were spread out over several months and that avoided the collapse of the hospital, the health system, the public health system here. However, by the time we got to the beginning of the second wave, that we alerted the governors in November that it would happen about in February or March in Brazil, the models were pretty clear. They didn't, they didn't have the same appetite for our recommendations. And that was an explosion. You know, March, April is the, uh, I, I say that is the 60 most deadly days in Brazilian history. Uh, we had an excess mortality of close to 300,000 people in that period, which is unprecedented in Brazilian history. You know, Brazil never had any major war, never had any major... You know, catastrophe, and this was incredible. And uh, at that point, I realized many things. First is that certainly we don't have a a global business plan for the dialogue between science and and politicians. This is doesn't exist. I mean, these these meetings that occur, like the climate meeting, is all for show. Is all for you know. In Brazil, there's a, a great expression that came from, from the imperial days and monarchy days in the 19th century is all for the English to see, you know, the, uh, you know it's like uh, the Brazilians would do something to keep the English happy in the 19th century so they wouldn't come to this part of the world, but there was nothing behind it, you know, and, uh, and that expression applies pretty well to the pandemic and to the climate issue and everything, but on the other hand, I also see in science a certain type of rigidity, some scientists resist to the notion that we should talk about science to openly to society, and I felt the backlash too. Some people writing to me, what are you doing? Why are you doing this thing? I said, well, I'm trapped in Brazil. I cannot live, and I can help do something. We're running models in my home computer. Uh, I had uh, students, graduate students, postdocs all over the country running models for our committee. And we are doing something, trying to pressure these governors to do the right thing. So what can be more useful as a scientist at this moment? Oh, no, but you're you are you're not doing your research program. I said, well, my research program is meaningless at this point. Uh, I can resume that at any point, at any moment. And I felt a lot of pressure from you know, the academic world, including my own university. You know, And that was pretty disappointing. It was pretty shocking, to be honest. Uh, because to some, some degree, I say that, in, I mentioned to you, Howard, I say that in my book, that everything is becoming religion in the world. Every major social movement, being science or politics, or looks like a religion. You have to have the Messiah, you have to have the dogmas, you have to have the truth, and you have to behave in a certain way. It's an incredible phenomenon that I, more and more I look at, it seems you know pretty realistic. The bigger human social organizations become, the more religious they, they turn to be in, in the term that you cannot de- challenge these dogmas or the messiah or the, or the behavior, the common behavior. So I felt that pretty strongly. And the toll it took to me is, I told my, my son the other day, my son's in, in North Carolina, I have been in, in my apartment for 20 months, probably the longest quarantine of a scientist in the world. Because the situation in Brazil was pretty serious, and I was deeply involved into this process. And a few weeks ago, I decided to go to the coast to another small apartment, uh, just to stay in front of the ocean to see a different scenery, because I mean, São Paulo is like New York. I'm in the middle of Manhattan here, surrounded by huge buildings and you know traffic and everything. It was incredible when I got to that little place, even though I didn't leave the apartment the same way I did in São Paulo. Just by seeing the ocean and having a completely different view, I was able to decompress a bit because it was extremely tense. Every time I had to meet with these governors, it was like you're going back to, to a, a, a test, you know, a, 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 an exam in medical school, and you need to explain the basics. You need to explain what is an exponential curve, and you need to tell these guys, look, you're going to have people dying on your streets if you allow uh, schools to go back, or if you allow the economy to resume. And mercifully, for about a year, they listened to me. But then afterwards, they, the pressures, the lobbies were too powerful. And I saw, I saw a different way in which politics works. I saw from within. And something has to be done. And that's my conclusion. We need to change completely. Yeah. So I'd like to uh, press
1: you on that and get your views on, on what we need to do and how feasible that might be. I'd also like to talk a little bit later about this notion of what needs to be changed on the scientific side. That's intriguing. I've had my own experiences and I'd like to share those with you and get your reaction about trust, authority, religion, or religious aspects as you, as you allude to. So I'd like to come back to to all of those points, but uh, before I do, I know you've written extensively about, not only the importance for coherent, responsible, and informed public policy at the local, regional, and national level, you've also talked about the importance of genuine collaboration at the international level. Specifically, with respect to the pandemic, there's this idea that if the world doesn't act coherently in such a way that there are pockets of the world where the virus can continue to be transmitted, it can continue to mutate, it can continue to wreak all sorts of havoc. That's not only a sign of moral culpability in terms of the of planet Earth, it's also not very enlightened because that's against everybody's self-interest. So this is all to say that I'd like to get a sense from you I know you've written lots of things about this I'd like to get a sense from you about the failings that happened at the international level what should have been done differently and what might we have learned from the experience in such a way as to structure things
0: better going forwards well basically the equation is very simple we're dealing with a collective organism an organism that doesn't recognize borders doesn't recognize differences in in race religion political ideology, economic models, nothing. It's an organism that at an individual level doesn't exist. Some people debate if a virus exists at a single particle level. So the virus' only way of surviving is to spread and mutate. It has to infect as many hosts as possible, hosts that are amenable to the proliferation of this collective organism, and it has to mutate to survive potential defenses that this host creates. So any military analyst would tell you that in a war in which you are, you are facing a distributed enemy, you cannot face this enemy locally by itself, by yourself. You need allies and you need to work the same way the virus works as a collective defense system. And the collective defense system would be a global strategy, which we never had. Each country decided to do whatever you wanted to do by itself. And each country created the conditions, the uh, best optimal conditions, not for fighting the virus, but for fighting its own political economic context. That was the priority. The priority was the local parameters, not the global fight. And what did you see? We saw uh, rich countries trying to get rid of it by vaccinating people as as fast as possible. and forgetting that you don't win a pandemic just with vaccines, particularly with a virus now that uh, yesterday a British scientist suggested that Omicron, the new variant, may be the most infective virus around at this moment in the planet. I don't know if that's true for a fact, but it was. I, I was pretty shocked to read that in The Guardian, okay? So we never acted as a collective defense system. And when we abandoned Africa or poor countries to their own local minimal ways to fight this pandemic, we basically left an open door. We got we got flanked by the virus in military terms. We basically got flanked by the virus because our right flank was totally exposed. And that's what people don't understand. A virus that mutates in South Africa, as we saw Omicron, in two weeks it was capable of doubling uh, the number of cases, daily cases in Great Britain, from 49,000 to more than 100,000 a day, because of course we live in a hyperconnected planet. One flight leaves Johannesburg and lands in London. The next day you have community transmission uh, of the virus, and I sense that in Brazil. In Brazil, we never had a federal government acting. The federal government denied. Uh, the existence of the pandemic or the severity of the pandemic. So the governors and mayors had to work by themselves. And luckily, uh, a few regions of the country organized themselves, self-organized themselves. But it was not enough because the airspace in Brazil, even though it was closed in the beginning of the pandemic, opened up and then we got all sorts of things coming down here. So, first of all, what we saw at the country level it would have to happen at the global level. We would, we should have a global scientific committee with teeth, with power, not just a, a performer. We should have a global scientific committee with subcommittees for all the major problems that humanity faces and the planet faces, because it's not human beings only. We are losing bees in the billions. We are losing insects in the billions, and without insects, without birds, uh, we'll die because we will not have anything to eat, because these guys help us, you know, get our crops going. We are, we are losing the ability to, to clean water. The Amazon rainforest is going to be gone before I die. We have problems that are all global, and we only have local attitudes or local initiatives. And it's pretty clear to me that if that would happen, scientists also have to change their mindset. Because scientists also think about their next paper, their next grant, and the academic system is all about money right now. You know, universities uh, in the biomedical sector pressure you to basically spend your life writing grants to get money. That's one of the reasons that really made me decide to go after four years to a to completely different path now, to create my own research institute and do things the, the way I, I see uh, fit. because the pressures are becoming or oh, being a senior principal investigator in the United States these days are incredible, even during the pandemic. I heard reports, uh, I, I got gossiped that people trying to sneak into labs when universities were closed to keep their graduate students doing stuff even though it was forbidden to get inside because, oh, I need to finish this project to, because my grant is due next month. The planet was going to smoke. And then I was asking some of my friends, well, why don't you drop everything and help calculate models, simulate? Well, you're a phenomenal mathematician. You're a phenomenal modeler. Why don't you join for... No, no, I have to do my my little tiny project because I have to apply for this NIH grant. So uh, that gave me also a, a view that... And, and the number of papers that came out they were bogus. The number of papers they were just crap, you know, they were being published by major... Uh, scientific journals you know uh, the entire system needs to be reviewed needs to be revamped peer review the way we fund science the way we put scientists on the wall and squeeze the last drop of creativity of these you know people to get money uh, the way science uh, is about these days of universities depending on federal funding to survive is almost a, 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 a lifeline If that would disappear tomorrow, major universities would be in deep trouble because the business plan requires federal funding to be continuous. So uh, I think that the pandemic exposed a a row of fragilities of the kind of civilization that we created since the Industrial Revolution, I think. Of course, prior to that, we had major problems, but the the Industrial Revolution and the Digital Revolution have created a variety of, of weak links uh, look at the logistic problems that we're having in the world. I I was in a, in a city for a few weeks that is uh, next to the largest port in Latin America, Santos. So I was with my binocular and my software tracking the boats that were coming. And it was incredible. I I, ne- I I know this city my entire life. Since I was born, I used to go there. I never seen so many ships trying to get to port and not being able to. It was a traffic jam. In the largest port in Latin America, and this is the same thing in Los Angeles, in Shanghai, the logistics of the shipping logistics was completely disrupted by a piece of lipid and protein and a, and a little uh, RNA, you know, inside. Think about it. <laughs> so it's a multi-dimensional problem, and we don't have the tools, the global tools. The United Nations, what the United Nations did, nothing. The World Health Organization, every day one, but who was listening? And what was the teeth? What was the power that these uh, institutions had? Virtually none, right? So it's
1: hard to disagree with the basic conclusions of what you're saying, but I guess I would put my disappointment in a slightly different way. It's true that we don't have the structures. We don't have the structures for institutions with teeth, as you say. We don't have the structures for real global governments. In fact, it's worse than that, it seems to me, because a lot of people, myself, I think included, at the very beginning of the pandemic, cast your mind back to those months in March and April of 2020. And I think there was some sense of an inchoate, Global awareness there would be scenes of the the lagoon in in Venice, and you'd all of a sudden the water would be coming clearer and animals were returning and there was some sense that people I think had that was impinged on their consciousness of the connectedness the 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 fact that this that there were real global issues, the pandemic first and foremost among them in most people's minds that required a certain sense of coherence and and global thinking. And in many countries where there had been a great deal of social divisiveness, I'm thinking primarily about the Anglophonic world, the United States and the United Kingdom after Brexit. I think people had hopes in those early days that maybe this would be the message that would force people to get out of their their little uh, uh, parochial disputes and think much more globally and think in a much more integrated fashion. And I think what we're seeing now, I can't speak to Brazil and I'd like you to comment on that, but certainly what we're seeing now in in those countries is anything but a large-scale international coherent non-parochial approach. I think people have been steadily hunkering down into their own trenches to an alarming degree. So when you say we don't have these institutions, I think that institutions with teeth, we don't have the structures, I would concur with you 100%. But for me, the problem isn't the lack of institutions because institutions can always be built or cobbled together or what have you. To me, the problem is a lack of will. And, And as I look at the world around me, I see not only... A significant lack of will. I see uh, a, a precipitously declining lack of will from not a very great height, but it's getting worse and worse and worse. Do you share that pessimism in terms of, or, or, or do you acknowledge that that seems to be the way it's going? And and if so, what can we do about it? Because I would put, as I said before, I would put the structure. The structures are important, of course. But the structures depend on a certain sense of will of at least the powers that be and hopefully the general populace. I mean, when, when you look at Bretton Woods institutions, whether you like them or whether you dislike them, there was clearly a desire in 1944 or whatever it was to create these sorts of structures. I don't get a sense that if you look around the world today, certainly among many of the major players, you see that type of enthusiasm for structures that will actually be able to develop coherent global solutions to these obviously global and to some extent existential threats that we're being faced with. So first of all, do you agree with that? And secondly,
0: what can be done about it in your view? No, I, I agree totally. I was I was just uh, showing the manifestations without talking about the cause and the cause is here, is in the mind frame, in the collective mind frame of the species because what, the reason I said it since the digital revolution we are having this type of problem is because contrary to everything, all the evangelists of the digital revolution or, you know, what, for instance, Marshall McLuhan had predicted in in his book, you know, about what would happen when the um, communication media reached the speed of the human brain the electronic media, as he called, that we would create this global village. I actually propose that we have had the largest tribalization process In human history, we had, due to the efficacy of the social media, the internet, and the speed in which one opinion can synchronize the minds of millions of people, we had created millions, perhaps billions, billions not, but tens of millions of tribes that create a particular view of reality that is, for the most part, exclusive to that tribe. And it cannot reach any consensus of, of any other tribe. Yeah. so you have people splitting hairs to disagree you know about pretty much everything and that's reason i I, I told you I, I have this project that I haven't been able to sit down and do it I want to write an editorial for a major newspaper or a major site saying how neuroscience ex- explains our problems in dealing with the pandemic and the explanation is that that we basically have uh, by our own fault create means to fracture civilization in a way that we cannot get consensus for anything. And not even for, as you said, for existential threats. So I agree totally what you're saying. The reason we don't have institutions of global governance is because we don't have a, a, a mind frame that establishes a clear cause and effect that if we don't have that, our species is in danger of disappearing and taking with itself the rest of the planet. That equation has not materialized in the minds of the vast majority of people. It's just a small number of people that is capable of, of making that assumption. So what do we do? Well, yeah, we need a vaccine for the information virus. We need some way to show to people clearly that the path that we are following is going to take us to the, the bottom of, of the abysm. We are already on the edge of the abyss. You know, The Economist just released a study today. I don't know if you've seen it. The exceeding deaths since the pandemic started, meaning the total number of deaths that happened globally since the beginning of the pandemic, exceeds the averages of previous years in 18 million people. 18 million. So this is pretty close to the lower estimate of the 1918 influenza pandemic. Which is twenty-five million. Yeah. Uh, it's probably more than that. But look, we we are uh, in theory we're in the best moment of the entire history of uh, Homo sapiens in terms of medical technology, medical resources, medical personnel expertise. Uh, in 1918, they didn't even know the agent of the of the pandemic. We knew in days what it was causing, and in less than a year, we had vaccines. And yet, we may be having close to the same number of deaths that we had in 1918, hundred years ago. So this should serve as a, a, a warning sign, right? And, and another thing, I, I mentioned this in a conversation we had an international meeting about a year ago when the pandemic was exploding in India everywhere. We had this conversation and I mentioned, look, everybody's thinking just about the pandemic, but if we had one more natural disaster of a major magnitude, a solar flare, that creates a you know something like what happened in 1859, the Carrington event. That so luckily there were just a few telegraphs and a few electrical lines in England, so it burned everything, but nobody noticed. But if that would happen now, we would not be able to talk because there would be no internet overnight or in a millisecond. Uh, there would be no electrical electronic equipment working anywhere in the planet. It would be all burned by the solar flare. That would be it. That would be the what move us through the divide where we are right now to the bottom of the abyss. So we need uh, very quickly to attack the real cause, as you said. And the real cause is we created a mind frame for our societies, particularly in the West, in which the egotistic hedonic behavior is determining policies. Oh, we cannot close shopping malls to preserve lives because people have to buy stuff. I see this in Brazil, uh, you know, uh, we have here, you you probably know, one of the largest parties in the world, Carnival. Yeah. L- last year, I was on national TV every day telling people, we cannot have Carnival. It would, be a, it would be a genocide. We would lose because we are getting at the beginning of the second wave. It was exploding all over. And mercifully, they canceled Carnival, which was l- almost like a national declaration of war, because, <laughs> yeah, carnival is like, for some people in Brazil, it's like life or death. You need to have it. It's four days of collective national therapy. But this year, we are already in this debate again. And we, we, the scientist, scientific community here saying, look, it looks like we are going to have another wave. We cannot have carnival again. I'm sorry. It's too risky. You know, Omicron is just getting into Brazil right now. And some governors have heard it, but others have not. And the main state for carnival is Rio de Janeiro, where millions of people converge to the streets. And carnival now is 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 uh, is going on. It's going to happen. At least today is uh, approved. And you would be crazy, okay? But you see, the mind frame is: I cannot live without four days of carnival. I I would risk my life, the life of my my family, my relatives, the community around. So. And people ask, well, why it was different in other countries? Well, in some countries, in Asia, for instance, the community sense is a little better than ours. In Thailand, in Vietnam, in in Philippines, there were, uh, in the beginning, a bit of a, a better sense of community, and they dealt better with the first two waves. Now, unfortunately, they're in deep trouble now, but because of lack of vaccination, among other things, but it was a better way to deal with the thing. In the West, we went, "Whoa, I cannot be without my pub. the British oh, I need to go to the pub, oh I have to go to the nightclub and look what happened. They have liberation day did you did you see this freedom day july 19th
1: don't don't, don't get me started don't, don't, don't yeah. get me started with the British and their freedom day because that's that's a whole lot, that's a whole other conversation that uh, Because you're going to make me kill myself before the end of this conversation.
0: Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) But there's one interesting thing. They they just did a poll this week. And 46% of people who voted for Brexit changed their minds. They realized that Britain is worse off a year after Brexit. And they realized that they were manipulated into voting for that. So there's some hope, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a short straw to hang your hat
1: on. But I I want some hope. So let's move to the direction of hope. And how do we deal very practically with this information virus? Because I agree with you. I think that's the crux of the problem. But I think there are all sorts of different manifestations that are associated with it. There are the obvious attitudes, the hedonistic, selfish, I'm not going to sacrifice what comes to me, this notion of liberty, a very confused notion of liberty, a lack of communitarian orientation, and so forth and so on. That's a lot harder to envisage a remedy, but uh, but it certainly has to be noted, and it's up there at the top of the list. Um, but there are other aspects to what you call the information virus. I want to touch on some of those and get get your feedback about it. And some of them, I think, have to do with the way the the in my judgment, the so-called progressives in uh, countries like the United States, it's a terrible word, progressive, because it means that everybody else is regressive, of course, if you're the progressive. But the self-proclaimed progressives say things that I think and act in such a way that I think is is quite unhelpful. So let me bounce a few thoughts off you, because my, my agenda is to say, OK, there is what you uh, eloquently call the information virus as really... The greatest existential threat because that information virus can take all sorts of forms. It can take the form of lack of appropriate response to a physical virus. It can take a lack of appropriate response to other existential threats. And as long as we are not understanding the situation and acting appropriately for the benefit of our species, collectively then we're in big trouble and we don't even have to specify which particular threat it is until we find a way to move forwards coherently on that front then basically anything is going to knock us out at, at 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 some level so let's talk about what that means so one of them as i said is is this hedonistic selfish idea perhaps we'll get back to that because i'm once we diagnose what these things are then i'm going to again turn to you and say how do we fix this what do we do what can we possibly do rather than just drink heavily, which is one of my preferred options. But, uh, but I'd like to have something a little bit more sanguine than that to, to cling to. But let me bounce another idea off you, which is that sometimes I think the people who are acting in the name of science, and I've seen that a lot in this pandemic, don't transmit their messages nearly as appropriately or as meaningfully or as cogently as they could. So let me tell you a little bit about what I mean by that and get your reactions to it. So one of the phrases which drives me completely crazy these days that people trumpet is trust the science. So that bothers me. It bothers me, first of all, because when I hear trust the science, I hear an expression that that denies to me one of one of the fundamental aspects of what the enlightenment was supposed to stand for, which is that it's not swapping out one form of trust over another. These guys with one particular hat say one thing and those other guys say another thing. It's the process that in principle, any individual would be able to determine and appreciate what's actually happening in the physical world around us. And of course, different people have different levels of expertise, but it's not because they were born in the right family and it's not because they were anointed by these particular religious figures or what have you. It's because of their objective determination to actually ascertain what was going on. And then that was magnified by an entire community, which is now at a global level to actually understand that. I understand what people mean by that. They mean you should have some respect for the expertise of of scientists and so forth. But the way that that should be conveyed is not, trust me, I'm a scientist, or trust me, I have a fancy degree, or trust me, I have a position at such and such university. It should be, let me explain to you what's actually going on in a way that you can understand, which brings me to my second point. And my second point is, I'm a big believer, as you know, that if one is sufficiently motivated one can describe the core aspects of frontiers of knowledge to anybody who's sufficiently curious. You can't do it, of course, at a super detailed level because that's why you, you study something for 10 years to get that level of insight, but you can communicate the core aspects and the core ideas which are behind this. And when people start saying things like trust the science, or you have to do this, or, or they are blatantly politicizing that process and they are sidestepping the opportunity for people to actually understand what's going on. And I think very often the scientists setting themselves up as authority figures are encouraging that type of behavior. And I see this a lot, I see this a lot in all the sciences. I've seen it for the longest time in the biomedical sciences. They seem to be particularly sensitive to that. Let me say two things before I shut up and turn it over to you and and get your response to this. The first is, as one particular example, I remember talking to you about something completely different, the idea of distributed processing in the brain and asking you about the sociology of that and my inquiries led me to understand that there are all these sociological fault lines in neuroscience, or so they have been like in any scientific field. And often it boils down to, without, I'm going to oversimplify this, but often it boils down to people primarily who were, who've been associated with vision sciences, who have made great strides over the, the decades in localizing, processing, neuroprocessing within a certain part of the brain. And people who believe in a much more integrated distributive approach of networks throughout the brain. And when I ask you questions like, well, what do the vision scientists, how would they respond to your, your theories and your ideas about distributed processing? You said words to the effect of, well, you know, it's difficult for them because there are all these Nobel Prizes that have been awarded to all these people like... Uh, Hubert and Wiesel. I'm not sure if I'm getting the names right, but anyway, uh, the, the, these guys. And that triggered something in me because, again, I was a scientific administrator for years. I think I have some personal awareness of the levels of egocentricity and, let's just say, uh, the darker side of human nature that scientists can demonstrate. But that being said, I have never known a field more than biomedical sciences where people tout Nobel Prizes. They're talking Nobel Prize, like they just can't shut up talking about Nobel Prizes. They talk about Nobel Prizes more than I've ever seen. And I think that is indicative of some aspect of this projection of authority, and to some extent, this need for authority that really can backfire. And before I, before I shut up, one more thing, I appreciate obviously, that this is a very difficult set of circumstances. When you're in a pandemic, people are confused. I mean, when, when you need biomedical science at any level, but certainly when you're in a pandemic, people are confused. They're looking for guidance. They're looking to know where to turn. They're looking for governments to actually be able to declare what should or shouldn't be done. They're looking for authority figures, and they need those authority figures. And people who feel that they are in a position of saying something substantial and substantive to save lives based upon their expertise are obviously determined to be able to express that. But to me, there's a real danger in crossing that line. And if you're setting yourself up as an unquestioned authority, then there's a real possibility and blowback in the longer term in terms of this information virus. So that's, that's my very, very long-winded perspective. What do you think about that?
0: Well, well I, I was remembering when you were talking about, you know, I'm, I, I told you before, I'm a great admirer of Lewis Manford. You know, I have read pretty much every book that he wrote. The guy was a genius for me. And he used to say, and when I started reading him, it was very funny because he one of his books this is, is the history of technology. You know, it's, it's three volumes and is one of the greatest books I ever read in my life. He says that the scientists, the modern scientists, were the equivalent of the priests of Egypt. And my position as a Latin American when I came to the United States 33 years ago, I was shocked, to be honest, because I was coming from a country that was in a dictatorship, military dictatorship, for uh, 21 years. And the motto of my schooling or the motto of my career here before I left was never trust authority. (laughs) trust what is, you know, proof to be real, yeah. not authority. I got to the United States with this complete mind frame of, I don't care if you're from Harvard, if you won the Nobel Prize, if you are the dean of the medical school, unless you prove to me that what you're saying makes any sense. I And what I found in American academia was, and British academia, I have to say, European, was completely the opposite. People would come to me, and try to say, no, you're wrong, because I'm the student of whoever. And I'm from Princeton. Oh, God. You know, I love Princeton. I went there a few times, a wonderful place. But I never, I never, I, I lectured at Harvard many times, and I never got, and I have to tell you, this is a funny story. I My first talk at Harvard, uh, David Hubel walked away. Really? In the middle of the talk. And at the end of the talk, someone said, well, how did you feel? Oh, Hubel walk out of your talk. This... He disapproved everything he said. I could care less. I mean, who is who is he? He doesn't pay my bills. You know, he doesn't do my experiments. Uh, he, he could have, if he would have done my experiments and see what I saw, he probably would convince himself. But if he doesn't by what I'm showing, that's his problem, not mine. And he can walk away in any moment. And, in fact, I, I was very vocal down in Brazil because uh, Brazilian TV and media start putting... YouTubers that got a PhD or a postdoc or did a postdoc for a year, and suddenly they are authorities talking about the pandemic. And I was say, look, <laughs> let let me put it that very clearly. It's not, as you said, trust science, like if this is religion or a Bible. No, we should my phrase here is let's use the scientific method. Let's rely on the scientific method, not not on someone's word or someone's title. Or just because someone did a one year postdoc at Yale, that doesn't make the guy, even if he's a virologist, any authority on anything. I mean, and suddenly these people are dictating rules and telling things. And I was there in the same shows and saying, wait, wait a minute. I'm a professional scientist for 40 years, and I don't use that as an excuse to say that I'm right or wrong. Uh, You're lecturing us after a one year postdoc, for Christ's sake. What is that? You know, and I saw that. All over the world. And I disagree. I disagree with several things that Fauci did, several ways that he put things. And I say, wait, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> the guy is smart, the guy is intelligent, but he's an administrator. For 40 years, for Christ's sake. You know, there are things that he doesn't know. He has to bring the guys who actually have the hands on the on the you know on the daily operation of a, a virology lab. And, you know, I I wasn't happy with lots of things that I heard on American TV. Exactly what you're saying. Scientists claiming, oh, I'm a professor at Stanford. Well, look at what a professor at Stanford did as an advisor to Trump, you know? So I don't believe in any of this. And I think science is having serious problems with that. It's almost becoming a monarchy or or a religion with popes and bishops and cardinals. And while I always believed, and my advisors always taught me that science is like a a horizontal process. You know, you are just worth what you discover and what you are capable of interpreting logically. And it's becoming more of a a social context. Whoever, I, I saw that in my career. I saw neuroscientists going very macho, you know, alpha monkey guys going to meetings and literally screaming, to make their points uh, accepted by majorities, and they succeeded because people were deadly afraid of them. These people would come and uh, I, and my students would say, "Oh, oh boy, you're saying something that f- that guy doesn't agree." I said, "Well, we saw that. We did the experiment. We saw the data. What what can I do? Yeah. And, and if he's not happy, he's not going to convince me by screaming in my face. I can tell you that. And I many times I I saw. Uh, Nobel Lords saying things that i didn't agree with and what so what and the other problem science is becoming more and more technique technology development you see people develop a method and 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 believe that that is the focus when the focus is answering questions or posing questions even questions that we cannot answer in the beginning because just by posing the questions you create you know, the motivation, uh, the will to try to answer the question. Yeah. So lots and lots of graduate students in, uh, would come to me, potential graduate students, and I say, well, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to develop this gizmo. I want to develop this brain machine interface. Say, no, no, no. This is an engineering answer. What is your, you know, what keeps you awake as a scientist? What are what you there answering? And a lot of times I got blank faces in front of me. Because these kids had never been confronted with that kind of question. So I agree with you. I thought that there were a lot of posturing, a lot of uh, alpha monkey behavior during the pandemic from part of the scientific community asking for a blank check. And uh, I was pretty, uh, in what I could do down here, I was pretty vocal in saying, look, this is not the moment And coming. Oh, we need more money for science. No, No, that's not the moment for that. Kind of advocacy. Of course, we need more resources, but this is not the point now. This is the point in which we demonstrate that we can behave in a different way than politicians, for instance. That we can collaborate across borders with no problem. That we can uh, share our knowledge the moment we have it. If we have a, a line of evidence that nobody had thought before, that we can we make it public as soon as possible. That so we can uh, rely on our colleagues around the world to, to think about it, if it's correct or not. And there was a science, uh, medicine was worse. I think a lot of doctors down in Brazil <laughs> didn't behave uh, in a way that I thought they should in terms of uh, proposing medications that would never work. Brazil was perhaps, together with the U.S., uh, the land of chloroquine, right? Uh, the, the president of Brazil was promoting this drug on TV on the media on the social media and everybody knew that was crazy that didn't have any effect so one thing is to talk about the tools the intellectual tools that you have available in science they are much better than in, in other domains the other is to try to as you said substitute science for religion i don't i don't i don't believe in that i don't i don't think that this is healthy either And one thing I wanted to tell you to finish is this goes into the theory that we discussed before in other conversations that as a species, the abstractions that we have created out of our brains, our collective brains, have become much more important than tangible aspects of survival of the species. I have this discussion every time. I had a a year and a half ago a a discussion with students at Thomas Jefferson University in, in Philadelphia. had read my book and asked for a meeting and it was one of the greatest meetings I had during the pandemic and I was trying to and they got it they got it uh, you know very well that a lot of our problems come from the fact that things that came out of our heads our ideologies our economic systems our views of what freedom means have become more important and more relevant than concrete information about how we survive as a species. Life, human life has been degraded below our abstractions. The biggest of which money, right? Is much more important than what goes on on a, on a daily basis. So to finish this digression, I have been seeing this uh, down here in Brazil and it's, it's pretty shocking, but it's, I think it's happening in the US, it's happening all over the world. The tribalization process has made discussions as basic as as let's wear a mask to uh, reduce the transmission of the virus almost impossible, almost as divisive as, oh, I'm going to vote Democrat or Republican. And we are talking about putting a piece of tissue in front of your face to avoid transmitting or acquiring a virus that is lethal. And I was just reading this morning uh, in the American press, what is going on in planes, in restaurants, in uh, football games or you know public events or public spaces where people say, look, you need to put your mask or you need to show me proof of vaccination. People are reacting with a level of violence, a level of indignation that is almost not rational anymore. I actually think that the solution for the information virus there is a long term issue that is education, of course uh, science is unknown to the big public. that's what the pandemic clearly exposed i mean i had I had to answer questions in in some of these t v shows or radio shows. We did something that was very useful once uh, every two weeks we had community radios all over Brazil listening to to us, and people could ask questions. And we are clarifying what had to be done. These were 4,000 radios around Brazil listening to scientific advice. It's the first time that it ever happened. People didn't know what a bacteria is versus a virus. People had no idea. And it was obvious to me that the level of scientific knowledge in, in the country was much lower than I ever imagined. I knew that was lower, but I could not imagine. You know, that I, I was asked if... Uh, uh, certain rituals could be used to to take care of the virus. And I very patiently had to explain that it didn't work that way, you know. Uh, and then when the vaccines came, it was also an explosion of questions that I never expected. And I saw some of my colleagues throwing their arms up and saying, no, I cannot deal with this. This is it's too insane. I said, well, if we don't deal with this, people will die. We need to, to you know, we need to, Answer these questions. We need to say something. I don't know uh, the level in which this worked because even radio, radio is a very peculiar thing. I actually got a lot of respect for radio after this pandemic. We, we communicate much better through community radio uh, than we did on TV, I think. Hmm. And because people could ask questions and people could expose their emotions and people could tell us what was going on in their own lives. Uh, and what is clear to me is that Scientists live in this bubble, our bubble, the one that I live for 40 years, the academic bubble, and they have very little contact with real life, in, particularly in these moments like we had in the pandemic. And this gap had to very quickly be reduced by scientific communities around the world. This is just to go back to the issue that I don't defend and I don't believe at all that you need to give a blank check to anybody. From a soccer player to a scientist, you cannot just say, I trust you blindly. That's not the way it should be. Uh, and, not, and that's not the way the scientific method is, is uh, meant to operate, as you know. Uh, and as you, what your experience is very similar to my experience. I participated in many study sections at NIH, right? And I quit. 2010, I said, no, I'm not going to do this anymore because I was feeling sick. I was feeling physically sick by the behavior that I saw. People trying to help their buddies. People try to impose their authority on, you know, like a, a gorilla in the room. And even though I don't get intimidated easily, that was I was feeling ill by seeing uh, good signs not being funded because there was no one there to to be a you know a personal friend or a defender of that. And you knew there was good signs. You knew there was solid, honest people. And But they had no chance. After that, I I lost faith on on the whole process. And I I made a proposal. The final study section said, look, what you need to do is get neuroscience grants to be reviewed by immunologists and immunology grants to be reviewed by by, uh, cardiologists. Because then you remove the social connectivity. And if you're a good scientist, you may not be part of the business specific specialty, but you know good science. Of course. You're going to recognize, right? You don't need to be a neuroscientist to see a good, uh, to judge a neuroscience grant. And I I made, and the guy laughed at me I said, well, if you propose that openly, you'll be shot dead. You know, uh, uh, and I said, no, it's the only solution. You need to randomize uh, the social connectivity because that's what is deciding the game right now. And so in that sense, I actually, to to conclude my rant, so... I'm following your lead. I, I'm, 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 <laughs> and I don't drink. The problem, Howard, I don't drink, so I, I, I have to verbalize my anxiety. Was I drinking? Was I drinking when I was ranting? No, no, Did you no. you see I, me
1: drinking? You
0: said, <laughs> you said a heavy drink is an option. For me, is not. You know? <laughs> so uh, my conclusion is, if we are honest as intellectuals and as scientists, after this is over, we should have a very deep conversation about the business of science. We should really examine and review all the processes and all our, you know, priorities and what we do as professional scientists, because the pandemic exposed a lot of problems, a lot of conflicts of interest, a lot of serious issues. The number of papers that were published that cannot be reproduced or they have big flaws in is explosive, you know? So we need, we need to put a finger on this nerve after the pandemic and, and bring this debate to the forefront.
1: I have a few more questions, but I think I'm running out of time. Let me just ask you, what has surprised you the most about what has transpired in the past two years?
0: Oh, there are many things. In the positive thing, the, the most positive is how quick we got vaccines to, to be distributed. That was a shock to me. I thought it would take four years, minimum. Seriously, I was having nightmares thinking how we are going to make it until 2023 or 24. So that was a major positive and it's a great achievement, I, I I have to say, is it, because it's not one vaccine, it's multiple vaccines. So that's a, a major positive. And I'll, I'll balance the major positive and major negative. I never thought when I, because I got intimately into this, political game of advising people in politics, big, heavy potential presidential candidates down here in Brazil, they quit. Thank God. They are not running. That was a big disappointment. How ill-prepared politicians of our time are in terms of dealing with a multidimensional crisis like this. This was a shock. Big shock. I was talking to people with degrees, people with academic degrees, you know, in, in power, and I had to explain an exponential curve where I had to explain how many people could die. So that was my big eye-opener. How huge is the gap between statesmen that we needed for this crisis and what we have around the world at the level of, of managers or political individuals out there running countries, states, or whatever. And it was not in Brazil only, in the U.S. too. You know, I've been in the U.S. for three decades and I, I couldn't believe certain things that I heard. Uh, the vice governor of Texas saying that he was ready to sacrifice his life because he was above 70 yeah. to keep businesses open. I, I never thought I would re- hear something like that. I'm going to give two more. The, the other great feeling I had was to when I went publicly saying that we needed to recruit scientists around Brazil to work for free, whatever time schedule The response was incredible. Incredible. Uh, 2,000 scientists around the country dropped everything they were doing to work for free for our committee. And this was moving. It made me believe that there is hope for science. You know, when these kids... We had a supercomputer available out of nothing. We didn't pay a a penny for using one of the fastest supercomputers in the country uh, to simulate scenarios, you know? And finally... The the second bad thing was to realize how difficult is going to be our mission to clarify to, to humanity the existential dangers that we are facing. It doesn't matter if it's the pandemic, a meteor, or a solar flare. It is not going to be easy to to recruit the minds of billions of people to realize that more than ever, we are at an existential crisis in our times. And it's not only the pandemic, you know, there are many others. And this is is a major challenge. That's the reason I believe that we should have at a global level, a scientific structure, independent, funded by governments to work independently, to clarify and to be trusted. You know, we need to build trust on, and it's not only scientists that should participate in this thing. Intellectuals of all sorts, educators, we need to create trust in something to be able to convey this vaccine, this informational of vaccine to people, because people don't trust anything anymore. That's, that's the major challenge of our time, in my opinion.
1: I hope you enjoyed this Pandemic Perspectives podcast. Once again, our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details.